Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, let me tell you what's happening. First of all, we are going to have a conversation in just a few minutes, or just a few moments, ideally, with Alex Beam, author of a new book about Joseph Smith. At the moment, though, Alex is lost in the corridors of WGBH, and he and the engineer are trying to find one another. So let me tell you about a few other things. First of all, let me just say that uh, ordinarily, at this point in the show, we have uh, an intro, uh, an introductory sketch uh, involving Kyone Wolf and often Greg Hill, and we thought about doing it today. And obviously, um, uh, there's obviously a, a template even for doing humor about Joseph Smith because the biggest hit on Broadway over the last few years has been the Book of Mormon. It didn't seem right somehow. Uh, and one of the things that uh, Alex's book does and that we want to do here today is explore some of this stuff, you know, in a pretty even-handed way. I think Alex does a, a pretty good job of, of this as well. Neither taking, neither uh, embracing neither the Mormon side nor the anti-Mormon side. Um, and so it just didn't seem like it would be right, great for a sketch. Um, let me also just uh, take this moment while we're trying to look at Alex <laughs> to tell you a little bit more about what's coming up in the, in the next couple of days. We will be uh, talking tomorrow to Paul Teeger. Paul's an expert uh, and a researcher uh, on personality types, uh, best known through the Myers-Briggs matrix of personality types. Um, the uh, We've had Paul on a bunch of times before, and whenever we do, we get a lot of phone calls. We get a lot of interest. In particular, we're going to focus with Paul and, and his daughter, who's now kind of gone. She's kind of, kind of gone into the family business uh, on uh, a new version of, of an older book called uh, Do What You Are. Uh, it's uh, an attempt to match that kind of thinking about personality types with career choices. And uh, so anyway, we'll be talking about that. We welcome your phone calls. We were going to try to get a, um, an online quiz up about that uh, so that people could even sort of type themselves a little bit and, and get ready. I don't know if that's actually happened yet, but st- stay tuned to uh, WNPR.org for that. Uh, Friday, of course, is the nose. We'll tell you more about that as the days go by. All right. I think we have him now. Uh, our guest is Alex Beam. He's a columnist for the Boston Globe, but more relevantly, the author of American Crucifixion, The Murder of Joseph Smith and the Fate of the Mormon Church. Alex, is that you? <laughs> it is I, Colin. It a, is I. What a relief. I thought I was going to have to talk about Joseph Smith for uh, 48 minutes or so, which I could I do. I think he would do a terrific job. I could do it if I had to. I've read the book. I'm well informed. Um, so, you know, it's almost difficult to know where to start and, and, and how to start, just in, in the sense that how much Joseph Smith 101 do people need? But um, and, and I might rely on your expertise about that. You're having gone around and talked to a lot of people um, and, and maybe had getting a sense of how much of this story the average person knows. I'm assuming we have to do a little bit here at the beginning to sketch out the biographic detail, biographical details of this guy. Yeah, I mean, I... I really wrote this book f- from zero, and I'm I'm actually I'm fairly well informed. I even knew uh, the family of Fawn Brody, who's Joseph Smith's greatest 20th century biographer. 
But I've done a couple of book talks now, and the this, this sort of the second thing I do, which I really can't duplicate on radio, alas, is I kind of wave my arms around, you know, and I extend my left arm as far as it goes. And I said, I say, here's Sharon, Vermont, mm-hmm. where Joseph Smith is born. And then I trace the Mormon's progress to the Mississippi River, where the action of my book takes place, you know, and then I use my right hand to, to be Utah. I mean, yeah, no, no, jo, Joseph Smith... Um, you know, was was born a poor a poor farm boy in Vermont, and uh, um, had a had a, a rather unusual. Uh, you know, as a teenager, first of all, he was a you know a treasure hunter. In fact, mm-hmm. he was even prosecuted by the law because he would go to the these people's farms. These kinds of superstitions were very big at the time. He'd go to people's farms, charge them a little bit of money, and says, "I'll find the buried Spanish treasure in the hill." you know, behind your pasture, they would pay him and he wouldn't find the treasure, but he would say that the treasure had been moved by spirits. In any case, you know, he went on from that to, um, you know, seeing angels in his sleep, seeing angels as a teenager. And then eventually he received uh, the Book of Mormon from the angel Moroni. And that that happens in upstate New York, right? Yes, that happens in Palmyra, New York. In fact, someone just texted me a picture of Hill Cumorah, which is a, a, a Mormon shrine that I haven't visited, but um, Joseph was told many times uh, by by an angel or several angels that he, that he should go to this spot uh, on the hill and dig, and he would find um, plates. Um, le- le- the angel Moroni um, was one of the uh, defeated Nephites, one of the two tribes that came to America in the Book of Mormon, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> anyway... And um, Joseph did did as he was told. It took him nine months to kind of assimilate these instructions. He 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 purportedly dug up the golden plates, you know, took them to his home, and then since he actually couldn't really read or write, um, he he recited, you know, through through inspiration, he recited to his wife and to the first of many scribes who played roles in his life. He recited the Book of Mormon. And so, uh, by the way, as we go along here, if people have questions, comments, maybe actual Mormons listening, we'd love to hear from you, to 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. And I don't want to dwell over much on this because this really isn't the meat of your book, Alex. But, so, but yeah, the, the story goes that he has not only received these plates, which nobody else gets to see, but he has these kind of seeing stones, right, these these kind of decoder stones somehow or other, which allow him to to read and understand a language that he wouldn't otherwise know. Right. The angel left him with the plates, left him the, the magic spectacles, which I find it hard to pronounce, but I think it's the umim and thurim. And the reason I mentioned the, the so-called scrying or treasure hunting earlier is because there, there's his detractors and even reasonable people can can draw a straight line from, you know, scrying. These are all kind of synonyms for dowsing. You know, finding things that are buried was sort of his illegitimate um, profession before he became uh, a prophet, in, you know, who had received the Book of Mormon fr- from God. So um, the, the, the present-day Mormon church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is hardly eager, you know, when people... Um, bring up these court cases from 1823 and 1824 where, um, you know, sort of disappointed clients of Joseph Smith's uh, say, how come he didn't find the Spanish treasure in my backyard like he said he would? 
Well, there's yeah. It seems to me that there are two things going on here, right at the beginning of the founding of this faith. Uh, on the one hand, and you know, we can go into s- some more details about uh, the the subsequent iterations uh, of Joseph Smith's prophecies and and how he moved his flock around. But we're we're at a time of real religious foment and a lot of religious origination too. There are a lot of religious movements going on in America. We can talk a little bit about that. And then he's up in an area that I, I picture anyway. A, at the time, up in Palmyra, New York, which is kind of on the edges of American civilization as opposed to right at the heart of it. And if we believe the historian David Hackett Fisher, you know, the more outlying the area you got to in those days, the more there was a lot of kind of magical thinking that went on. And so you had Joseph Smith up there and he's dowsing and divining and scrying and, and, and doing all this stuff, which may seem a little outlandish right now, but probably didn't at the time. Yeah, that that's exactly accurate, and I, it's it's odd what you know one learns late in life. But I mean, what what I learned, um, sort of anticipating, is that you know the the action of my book actually takes place on the American frontier because the American frontier is the Mississippi River, at this time, you know, well before 1850, when when the, the Trans Mississippi states are brought into the Union. But that also holds for upstate New York, as you say. It's, the Erie Canal is only just being dug. In fact, uh, Joseph Smith's mother makes some money sort of selling lemonade, if you will, or selling provisions to the men who are digging the Erie Canal. So this is, it's very, very far away. As you know, it's called, it's called the burned-over district because so many sort of crazy evangelicals with, with questionable claims you know, to seeing fire, seeing God, entertaining Jesus Christ are are having a lot of success in this in this remote part of America that that's far from 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 the actual cities of Philadelphia, Boston, and New York. And it seems to me that another thing that is happening right now is that along with the physical frontier, there is um, a, a theological frontier that's being explored, too. So you've got you know, the so-called Second Great Awakening. You've got a proliferation of often individual people who have their own version of Christianity or something resembling Christianity. You mentioned the Millerites uh, who were uh, who actually, I think, uh, the modern-day Seventh-day Adventists are, uh, to a certain degree anyway, kind of an outgrowth of the Millerites. The Campbellites uh, came over, come over from Scotland. They are, they are manifested today in the Church of Christ. Um, and and a bunch of other lesser, no well-known things that are going to fizzle yeah, out Yeah, I mean, even, even the Shakers, of course, right. um, which everyone's heard of. Um, and then even yeah, as, as, yeah. The, as the century goes along, you have the beginnings of the two or three other American-founded religious movements that are going to persist. Christian Science, Seventh-day Adventists, Jehovah's Witnesses all start later than Mormonism, kind of more uh, in the 1870s. But really, the whole 19th century is a time at which people feel free to experiment religiously or proclaim things religiously because the established religious order, you know, only sits in some of these these established seats. And, and there is a frontier to be explored, right? That's exactly true. I sort of want to say two things. I mean, one thing that you, that you're that's behind your remarks, of course, is that new Americans are arriving in North America, who you know the the, the original colonies um, as um, the it, I've got I'm so embarrassed. I think Fisher also wrote Albion Sea. Yeah, he did. I yeah, mean, where he, where he points out that you know five different um, religions uh, founded founded colonies in America. But by the time we're talking about 
the sort of the first half of the 19th century, there's a whole new wave of emigrants that really have no use, you know, for Puritanism or whatever they're up to in Virginia, the, the religion of William Penn. So, I mean, Joseph Smith and others, which is genuinely interesting, and as you say, are, are founding American religions. Of course, Joseph Smith's religion is arguably the most American of all. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. But yeah, they're, they're creating sort of new religions, new non-European religions, taking the European religions um, as their base. I want to make one quick point um, because I, I, I don't really get into this in the book and people ask me, and it's quite legitimate, which is if the Millerites and all these other people are running around and Lee and the Shakers, why is Joseph Smith successful, more successful than his competitors? Because let's face it, this is a business and he and he wins. He, he gets more business than anyone else. And I, I, in a way, it'd be great if I had a really smart answer to that. But I think... Part a partial consensus is that he had, and I, I hope this doesn't sound trite, but that he had a book, and that that was really a big deal. There were a lot of fiery preachers around, you know, who who spoke with the word of God. Surely Joseph Smith among them, but this this creation of the book, um, to be perfectly crass, was a really interesting selling point for for gathering converts. I mean, I would also say that. Uh, if I were uh, there at your book talks, I, I would also respond. I, I would I would object to the premise of the question to a certain degree because yes, Joseph Smith is the most successful uh, in the sense that there are 50 million or so worldwide Mormons today, and that's a lot. Four, uh, Fourteen. I don't mean to be a jerk. All right. Well, no. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm a jerk. I'm the last person to sit here and, and split hairs about uh, the number of uh, Latter Day Saints there are, but. Um, but so 14, 15 million uh, followers, you know, so he's a big winner that way. But compared to Thomas and Alexander Campbell, compared to almost anybody else we can think of, the founders of the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, uh, Mary Baker, Eddie Anley, you pick your those people didn't get assassinated. So, you know, in some ways. He's not the big winner. And I hope, by the way, Alex, by the end of the uh, show, we'll be talking a little bit about the degree to which modern Mormonism is simply an extension of Joseph Smith and the degree to which modern Mormonism or modern LDS is uh, something that has essentially outstripped and outlived Joseph Smith. And I, I think you can kind of make both arguments, but we'll we'll come to that. But it, it's not necessarily the case that he's successful in all the ways you want to be successful, like living, for example. <laughs> well, Colin, I mean, my dear friend, I mean, the, 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 arguably the, the, the greatest preacher of the last 2,500 years died at age 33, mm-hmm. right? So, so and, and as, as the somewhat jumped up title of my own book yes. intimates, <laughs> I mean, dying in this manner it is a form of success. Well, but I guess yeah, I would say uh, that it, the dying isn't an isolated incident um, to a greater degree probably than any of the other religious movements that you and I just rattled off, th- this group from the time they're in Missouri to the time they're in uh, to Illinois are suffering constant harassment and persecution, even as, and this is something that your book really revealed to me, even as in other ways Joseph Smith is achieving a kind of temporal significance that, that I wouldn't have expected that he had. We're kind of getting ahead of our story here. Um, but uh, so how, what, what should we do? Should we just quickly jump through <laughs> the migration uh, from Kirtland to, to, to Missouri? To, well, I to... do sort of, I think, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, there's a chapter in my book, as you know, called Everybody Hates the Mormons. And when, 
And when I try to explain what's in my book, I do try to explain this this disturbing pattern. I mean, the Mormons are tossed out of Kirtland, Ohio, their first settlement, because Joseph has this harebrained idea of starting a bank that bankrupts everyone in the entire town. The, the ominously they, named Kirtland Safety Society Anti-Banking Company. Never put your money in an anti-banking company. (laughs) You'd really want to have your money in that company. I mean, he he literally flees Kirtland under the dead of night, and then he goes to his own Zion, the place that he's declared to be the Garden of Eden. He takes all of his followers, who at that time number in the hundreds, to the state of Missouri. They cross the, the Mississippi, and to make a long story short, they get chucked out of Missouri. You know, the governor has the extermination order, which means we're going to—it doesn't mean we're going to kill you. It means we're going to chase you out of Missouri. They get chucked out of Missouri. They're forced to flee to Illinois. My, my, my book starts with this kind of thriving Mormon colony in Nauvoo, Illinois, which is as far away from the center of American power as you can possibly get. There's no state—it's um, the westernmost uh, place in the settled United States— and of course, I mean, the, as I will write in this book, I mean, they're going to get chucked out of here too. So, I mean, the, by the you know the the Mormon trek to Utah is a, an act of of incredible desperation, where the Mormons are in fact fleeing the country they hate, the United States. But you know, in between, he does do these remarkable things, and having suffered this incredible setback in Missouri, where they lose all this land, they lose all kinds of things, they get chased out of Missouri. He buys this really crappy land in uh, on on the river uh, in Nauvoo that is marshy. It is pestilential, uh, so pestilential that as people, as Mormons arrive, as his followers arrive, they're you know dying at this alarming rate from spotted fever. But he drains the marsh and he creates this sustainable city, which right at the end of his time there is the most populated city in Illinois. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. It's larger than Chicago at its time. Chicago hasn't yet populated. Um, it's between ten and 12,000 people there. And, and um, But as you know, for having, I mean, it, it, it's an essentially, I mean, it's not a fortress, but it could be because outside of this city, you have this in, in, incredible, the population has really, over the years, over the five years, that Joseph has settled his people there. They've really come to hate the Mormons. Now, before we go to break, let's just sort of establish a few other things. So one of the things that distinguishes Joseph Smith, although not from lots of other prophets, but is that it's all about him in a lot of ways. He's seen these tablets that nobody else has seen. Um, he's the person who has received these revelations. And these revelations are 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 powerful enough and and primary enough, as far as he's concerned, to constitute basically additions to the Bible, stuff that the Bible didn't get right the first time. He knows all this stuff now, and and so and hence the Book of Mormon. So you've got that, and so you've got him as this unimpeachable by his own people source of authority. Everything he gets is straight from the Lord. Uh, so you can't really ask too many questions about that. And then as he begins to establish his, his temporal presence in, in Nauvoo, he kind of does the same thing, right? He just makes himself everything. He's, I mean, he's all three <laughs> branches of government plus the military, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a theocratic city-state. I mean, everything that he rules is, is unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's head of the city council. He's, he's, head, of the, he's head of the judiciary. Um, he makes all decisions. I mean, it's important also to point out, you know, um, that Joseph Smith is kind of a kind of an amenable guy. You know, he's a friendly guy. He wrestles in the dirt with a bunch of people. He he drinks plenty of whiskey. He's not a drunkard, but he's he's no stranger, even though he's received you know a revelation from the Lord called the Word of Wisdom about how people shouldn't drink uh, coffee, tea, wine, and beer. 
I, you know, so he is he's truly a larger than life figure um, who who reigns over this uh, this kind of this kind of cultish religion at this time. Does he remind you of any present day figure? Is there anybody or any sort of amalgam of people that you can think of now that he reminds you of? I, I have my own little answer to this. Uh, OK, I, I have only. Well, I'll, I'll try to be relatively brief. Let me let me just say. Reading the first 150 pages of, of Lawrence Wright's book about Scientology is, is pretty darn disturbing for someone who knows a lot about Joseph Smith. I'm just going to leave that on the table. Mm-hmm. And then the other, I mean, I have to say, again, it doesn't dignify Joseph. But, I mean, the, James Jones, uh, there has to be something there, you know, so, sort of an analogy. I know not, all, you know not all of your listeners would, would remember, but he was a San Francisco kind of charismatic preacher who brought his people down to... Guyana and Central America, and they all ended up dead. Right. I, I had I had so much more benign an, an, an analogy <laughs> that I was going to make. In in your accounting of him, I mean, this isn't a precise resemblance. It's more of a spotty resemblance. There are certain things about him that remind me of Bill Clinton. You know, he's a man of appetites. <laughs> and, uh, That's great. No, go on. That's great. I mean, he's a man of appetites. He's a man who really kind of enjoys life. He's very charismatic, very good at persuading other people. And he's kind of good at adjusting the story, adjusting reality as things go on, kind of adding a new layer to what he's seeing so that that accommodates the latest change in circumstances. Now, I mean, I'm not suggesting a one-to-one correspondence here, but as I was trying to picture who this guy was, and if I met him and I didn't have any big judgments I was going to make, and I wasn't going to compare him to L. Ron Hubbard or James Jones, like if I just thought he was, hey, this guy who kind of basically runs the show down there in Nauvoo, you know, who does he remind me of? I think that's actually brilliant. I mean, so I salute you because, I mean, Cl- I mean, Clinton, of course, is this incredible merger, you know, of, of the sacred and the profane. I mean, I mean, Clinton is no stranger to the to the Bible. I mean, again, right. we don't have to lecture anybody here, but he's really in touch with um, with, you know, Arkansas spiritual. He's in touch with spirituality generally, I think, you know, which uh, endears him to African-American people. Anyway, yeah, it's a good it's a very and. I mean, Joseph Smith is, is politically pretty darned astute. Mm-hmm. I, I know that the opposite case can be made, but many times he showed uh, very sane and sober judgment, as did Bill Clinton. And and just before we go to break, I mean, the thing that was remarkable to me was that I, I had sort of pictured Joseph Smith as this real um, outlier in, in even sort of in terms of like what anybody knew about him or I, that he was this constantly this fringe person. But in fact, the New York papers wrote about him all the time and he had embassies. He was sending out embassies <laughs> to the czar and to England. To France, and, yeah. I mean, he was, I mean, a, a very peculiar, quirky and not necessarily mainstream operator, but he was really trying to operate somewhere within the mainstream in you know, in a, I mean, he thought he was going to be president, among other things. Yeah, I mean, he was a national celebrity. To another, be sure. another Bill Clinton analogy. They both ran for president. <laughs> they both ran for president, and Smith said if he had lost, he would have run again. Alas, he was killed in the interim. But um, yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, Smith. Smith was. I mean, the the fact that he was a national celebrity, as I point out, you know, I mean, he confused that. You know, his, his fame and notoriety are kind of uh, e- easily mixed up. And, yeah, when he would get written up, although the New York Herald actually did love him, you know, but um, a lot of the people just made, made you know, made, got, got had already heard that he had more than one wife and they were starting to dig into that, shall we say. Yeah. And, and I mean, 
some of his embassies to the outside world were a little peculiar. I know that he was offering the Tsar this dragon weapon that one of his followers had invented, right? This flamethrowing device? <laughs> the flamethrowing submarine or something. Yeah, the editor made me cut out a really detailed description of that because he, he thought it didn't make any sense. But, um, yeah, no, Joseph was corresponding with the Tsar. He, I mean, he, he loved to correspond with American presidents, but it's it's rather Shakespearean. You know, the, the fact is you can always write a letter to the American president. The question is whether he'll write you a letter back. Right, and he also routinely got it wrong, too. Didn't he write to five different presidential com- uh, contenders omitting Tyler and Polk, the two that really would have uh, been in a position to do him some good by actually being president? Anyway, we're going to take a quick break here. We're talking to Alex Beam. The book is American Crucifixion. When we come back, we're going to talk about, well, basically how it all went south. Uh, in Nauvoo. So we're back. We're talking to Alex Beam, the author of American Crucifixion, The Murder uh, of Joseph Smith and the Fate of the Mormon Church. Uh, We'd be happy to hear from you. We've got one call on the line right now. We're going to go to some calls in just a second. Our number, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You may tweet us at WNPR, Colin. I think our tweet master, Greg Hill, somewhere in the house. all right, so Alex, um, we're picking up our story. It's the the it's the eighteen forties in Nauvoo, Illinois. Um, uh, Joseph Smith has established uh, this colony here, this town that's uh, actually a, a thriving town, and people are are arriving uh, in droves, not only from elsewhere in the United States, but even coming up the r- river from England, uh, where he has sent to where which he has sent missionaries. So things are pretty good, but then things aren't very good because there's this constant drumbeat of discontent with. The Mormons. Now, where from does this come? Why? Why does everybody hate the Mormons? Right. It's really it's a layer cake of reasons. Um, And so I'll just tick them off one by one um, as they are in the book. Um, The the residents of Illinois uh, initially greet the Mormons with with, you know, tremendous generosity and openness of heart. Basically, to, I mean, to fast forward a few years, Nauvoo starts to thrive in a kind of um, not very economically successful part of Illinois. So there's already kind of, you know, when someone's doing better than you, that's that's always a reason to dislike them and feel resentful and not like them. So there's there's a bit of a, you know, Nauvoo has a certain amount of economic self-sufficiency, a certain amount of success. Uh, you know, to draw the, the line forward. To, Mormons like to do business with Mormons. Uh, Mormons uh, are, are pretty comfortable uh, taking advantage of, of Gentiles, as they call them, non-Mormons. So there's a little bit of an edge there already on the economic front. Um, politically, the Mormons really enraged people in these Missouri counties that they, they kind of invaded um, because they Joseph simply told them how to vote. So in Illinois, in a relatively uh, small county, they could call the shots. Joseph could could control 4,000 votes, 5,000 votes. So he could get anybody elected to the Illinois legislature and even more. I mean, he, he actually, you know, the Mormons, in some people's argument, controlled, say, the, who would become governor of Illinois. So they were a huge voting bloc that, that always voted en masse, which, which really enraged 
anybody who lived around them because everyone else's vote was automatically nullified. Um, sort of thirdly, um, there, even though I go out of my way to say that this is not a particularly uh, re- religious part of America, southwestern Illinois, they they are, after all, um, adherents of a blasphemous religion. Um, you, you briefly alluded to, I mean, now, you know, Joseph is is uh, demanding canonical status for the Book of Mormon, and nobody, I mean, again, to be really crass, nobody knows where he pulled this out of, but he's also rewritten the Book of Genesis. He's added the Book of Abraham to the Bible. This this is, I mean, to, so to the extent that there are, you know, men of the cloth in Illinois, they're all just damning Joseph Smith to hell. Tremendous uh, religion, religious anger directed against the Mormons. And then lastly, you know, starting in 1843, maybe even in 1842, um, the word is leaking out about polygamy. Polygamy is a secret doctrine um, that Joseph Smith is propagating among his, his most intimate, no pun intended, uh, male um, male friends uh, and, and colleagues. He basically has started to whisper to them from 1843, God has told me that you need to take more wives. And um, I mean, this is being written about as far away as, as New York in the New York papers, you know, old Joe Smith and his Mormon seraglio, because dissident Mormons have left Nauvoo even as early as 1842 and accused Joseph, um, Joseph and his followers of having, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 wives. Now, and in fact, that is exactly what's happening, although in Nauvoo, it's still, it's still a secret. It's a shocking secret, in fact. Including, I mean, every time, including from Mrs. Joseph Smith, uh, his first <laughs> wife, wife, Emma Hill, uh, maintains kind of deniability about this, right? Yeah, I mean, she's the most shocked of all. <laughs> I mean, and I, again, I'm not trying to be facetious, but yeah, she's his wife of 12 or 13 years. And, and indeed, I mean, if you skip to the end of my book, I mean, when she's in her 70s, um, she will always deny, although this must be, this is psychological because she saw Joseph's young young concubines with her own eyes because, you know, four of them lived in the same house with them. But um, yeah, even, I mean, Brigham Young, his his closest follower and his eventual successor, you know, when, when Joseph comes to Brigham Young and says, you know, you've got to take more wives, Brigham's famous quote is, you know, I, I that was the first time I desired the grave. Mm-hmm. Um, it he, it is it's truly you know shocking to these these people who've embraced these new religions and um ultimately you know it, it will create a, a dissident movement within the church uh, you, you didn't include these on your list but I also wonder I mean in and among Joseph Smith's both uh, political and religious ideas um, is uh, a certain anti-slavery current uh, and a rapprochement uh, with Native Americans that probably wasn't very typical of Illinois settlers in the 1840s. Were those controversial? Did those add to uh, his uh, to the kind of animus directed? Yes, at him? absolutely. I mean, you, you've you, you've caught me out in that sense because. Um, on the first one is complex because even uh, even though you know Joseph's presidential campaign platform um, called for the manumission of, of the slaves, meaning that the slave owners would be bought out. I guess he was going to sell off the national parks or something yeah. and reimburse slave owners. I mean, so I mean, he had a checkered record on on African American slavery, because in Missouri, you you know, you could be shot. Indeed, you know, one of his newspaper editors was practically shot for advocating freedom for black people. Um, on the, Na- the Native Americans is, um, is un- un- unbelievably complex and fascinating. And yes, you happen to be exactly right. Um, Joseph was, was you, could say, you could say, unfailingly charitable 
towards Native Americans, some of whom were still on his side, although you know, Abraham Lincoln and others had done their best to chase them across the um, Mississippi in the 1830 war, Black Hawk War. But um, there were a lot of Native Americans around on both sides of the Mississippi, and Joseph was extremely charitable to them, of course, because he thought that they were descendants of the, the Nephites, um, whom he writes about in the Book of Mormon. And, um, you know, basically all the non-Mormons in that part of the world um, hated the Indians. So we've got all that, and, and so there's um, there's unrest, and we're going to have to sort of telescope um, a, a lot of what happened, but um, ultimately it does wind up with, and maybe we should just quickly talk about one of the more complex figures in this story, uh, Governor Thomas Ford, um, who who is sort of, well, I mean, I think your chapter heading compares him to Pontius Pilate, and he is kind of playing both sides uh, of this question a little bit. Right. I'm I'm pretty hard on Ford. <laughs> but Ford is this is this very pusillanimous figure. He refers to himself as the accidental governor of Illinois. What what you're talking about is that um basically Hancock County, where the Mormons are, is is on the verge of bursting into flames. And Ford decides to leave uh Springfield, Illinois, the capital, and come down to Hancock County, and he perceives himself as an honest broker between Joseph Smith and the Mormons on the one hand and the so-called sort of angry old settlers whom Ford secretly derides. Ford left a detailed history of all these events. He's a a good writer, and he actually looks down on uh, the non-Mormons basically as white trash from the South, sort of slave-driving white trash. But in any case, he goes down to to Carthage, Illinois, which is really where the the balloon is going to go up, and he he pictures himself as somebody— who can speak to both sides, and he, he ends up playing a a very a very nefarious role. Um, and basically, uh, Mormons at the time and to this day regard him as someone who who guaranteed safety to Joseph Smith, and said that Joseph Smith, you know, would would be would be indicted and and prosecuted for certain crimes, but not but that his uh, his body would be protected, and then um, you know Smith is of course. Uh, murdered virtu- virtually in cold blood right under Ford's nose. Although not literally under Ford's nose, in a bizarre accident of timing, and it seems to be an accident <laughs> of timing, Ford is in Nauvoo talking to Mormons. He's he's up on his pedestal talking to the Mormons and kind of chiding them for, uh, you know, not towing the line with the law and not being a little bit more cooperative and, and for some of the stuff that's gotten Smith into trouble and for not coughing Smith up a little faster once he did get into trouble. He's giving this speech to them Almost at exactly the time this ragtag militia group is attacking the the government building where Joseph Smith is being held and ultimately killing him yes and it's and it's definitely clear that the the mob, which is a, a, a course a sort of a, a shorthand for for two or three separate um, ragtag militias, uh, knew full well that Ford wasn't in Carthage where joseph smith was was in prison and and took advantage of that it would have been um, probably, I guess, arguably, it would have been impossible for them to kill Joseph Smith at that time if Ford, who is, of course, the commander in chief of of all the men under arms in Illinois, period, um, it, it, it it would have been hard to, you know, con- convince people to take up arms against fel- fellow Illinoisians, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, 
Ford, I mean, Mormon cynics, I'm not this person, but I guess Mormon cynics feel that Ford absented himself at a particularly propitious time, allowing Smith to meet his fate. Although his, his argument was, I wouldn't have been standing there in front of thousands of Mormons if I knew that right at that time, you know, their leader was being killed. I mean, that wouldn't have been a good place for me to be in case word got back. But I just want to go back to these ragtag men because, I mean, that actually could be a little bit misleading on our part, too. Um, you know, how accurate is Thomas Ford's dismissive opinion of the people who wind up attacking this government building? Uh, they Are they backwoods, moonshine, swigging? Uh, I mean, the, 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 the phrase, yeah, no, a set of, course, of respectable of men. Uh, right. Crops up in who are these guys? Yeah, no, they're referred to as well. They're the bourgeoisie. I mean, yeah, they're the, they're the small bourgeoisie. Um, they're they're landholders. They're farmers. They're people again who, for the reasons that we discussed earlier, this sort of you know meal layer cake of reasons. They all hate the Mormons for for various reasons. Um, they are you know so, some of them are are lawyers. Some of them are, are future statesmen, both in Illinois and elsewhere. Although those seem to be the leaders, um, the people who say, you know, get the mob whipped up. I mean, just, you know, the, let's let's say there's five or six militias camped in Carthage, all of them probably fairly eager to do Joseph some harm. You know, the man the man who's at the head of each of those militias, you know, as you can appreciate, you know, knowing American history is 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 like some lawyer or some farmer. Right. Mm -hmm. These these are not armies. These are like the, you know, analogous to the men who fought at Lexington and Concord. And so the head of those uh, divisions are, yeah, are the quote unquote, you know, the, the richest guy in, in some part of the county or something like that, or the guy who owns the most land or, or some lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. And, and actually, uh, in uh, one of the things that you sort of chronicle later in the book is that there's this sort of Mormon oral tradition about all the horrible things that happened to these people and pus came out of their eyes and fell on their food that they were eating and stuff like that. But in reality, with the possible exception, with some notable exceptions, including Governor Thomas Ford, who really did come to a very bad and ignominious end, most of these guys, you know, I mean, there was a case, right, people versus Levi Williams or, whatever, you know, for for this lynching or whatever we're going to call it, this assassination of Joseph Smith. But But basically, you know, nobody really paid the piper on this. Right. I, I do sort of call it a lynching. I've never, you know, I, I probably sh maybe shouldn't be so loose with that term, but it it seems to me, and, and indeed, you know, there's academics who've, uh, who talk about mob violence, uh, the antebellum mob violence, uh, which included a lot of lynching. This is, this is a lynching of a, of a, of a white divine, if you will. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I mean, the, the, the culpability issue, I mean, I, I have such a dark sense of humor that I find it, it, it's kind of laughable if it wasn't so horrible. It's, it's pretty darned sure that we know the five people who actually, you know, pumped musket lead into Joseph Smith. And they all simply just crossed the Mississippi to the Iowa Territory the next day and were never found again. So there was this elaborate month-long show trial that you referred to, you know, Illinois v. Levi Williams, who's a, a very prominent citizen, had his own militia. And, you know, I believe there's nine defendants. I'm having trouble remembering. And um, there's this utterly ridiculous trial, you know, with a dipsomaniac um, prosecutor, <laughs> an extremely able defense counsel, as usual, sort of like O.J. all over again. And these nine guys walk, you know. I mean, nobody, nobody, even though Joseph Smith is killed in broad daylight, uh, no, you know, nobody suffers any consequence for his death. 
We're going to take a quick break. We're talking to Alex Beam. Uh, the book is American Crucifixion, The Murder of Joseph Smith and the Fate of the Mormon Church. When we come back, well, I mean, we're running out of time and we have so many more things to talk about. We'll only talk about some of them as a result. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. Our interns are Anna Novak and Tess Aronson. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mitt Romney. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff and their Masonic aprons, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, does your personality fit your job? And now back to Colin. All right, we're back. We're back with Alex Beam. One of the things I want to ask you about here in this segment, um, Alex, is is um, how contemporary members of the Church of Latter-day Saints view the kind of research that you're doing. And before I even ask you that, uh, we've got some calls coming in here at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. You can call in, too, or you can tweet us at WNPR. Colin, here's Matthew on the line from East Har- Hartford. I believe you are a member of the Church of Latter-day Saints, right, Matthew? I, I am. Thanks, Colin uh, and Alex. A great show. I'm a card-carrying member. So, um, you, when you first kicked off the segment, I was, I, I was struck by the question, you know, why was Joseph Smith so successful? And I've, I've kind of wondered, you know, here I am in the 21st century, would I have believed the stuff that Joseph said back then? And I like to think that I would, because a few of the things that he, that he came out with, I think, are, are novel to the world today. I mean, one of the things that he established, first and foremost, I guess I should say, is that, you know, Christ is at the center of the Church, uh, first of all. But he, but he continues on with this prophetic tradition, and he, and he does things that prophets do, like Noah and Moses and all of these old you know, prophets that we all know about from our Bible stories. But he said some pretty amazing things. First of all, hey, I'm a prophet, and you don't have to believe me. You can read, for example, the Book of Mormon. And, oh, by the way, there's—let me tell you about temple worship and priesthood authority. So in his day, he came out with some really novel things that, that we Latter-day Saints would say were sort of lost from the ancient Christian tradition— and he and he wrapped a bow around it and said this this makes sense and the prophetic tradition uh, kind of puts all of that in perspective you know if and, and one I know you you start off the conversation Alex with you know the treasure seeking and all of that but I don't really think you can start the Joseph Smith story without beginning with the very first question that Joseph had which which was you know if there's one God and there's one Bible then why so much confusion and that's what starts the whole journey for Joseph Smith. He goes into the woods and he prays and, and lo and behold, yeah, God... Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to interrupt you and, uh, with some... Apo- you're exactly right. I mean, I would in my own defense say that's not the first question that Joseph asked. However, you're right. It's the most important question. Joseph says, why are there so many churches? And he's told by God that the, that the churches um, aren't real and he starts his own church. And I, I'm just going to make... I, I'm not trying to cut you off in any way, but you, a, a very important point you're making that that we haven't gone over is that Joseph was was uh, this and they played a song in the break you probably heard it which referred to the new dis, new dispensation. Um, Joseph is talking about a you know a restoration of the original values of the Judeo Christian Church in, in North America. Anyway, I don't I don't want to cut you off. 
All right, yeah. Um, Matthew, did you want to just wrap up what you were saying? Well, I, I would just say one other thing, too, that, that, um, that you brought up was, you know, the, the concept of the harebrained idea of, you know, starting a bank. But in the context of the time, what was going on there, was, there was a ton of bank, there a ton of land speculation. I think it's probably the equivalent of what we just recently went through with the financial collapse. And, and the Mormons were victims just like everybody else. Oh, yeah. So. And that was my fault. I was the one who uh, was uh, No, he's right. I did call it here. I mean, you're, you're all right. I mean, Matthew, I, you're exactly right, of course. Um, nutty banks are starting up. Yes, Mormons were victimized. However, I mean, when Colin read the name of that bank, you know, uh, Joseph uh, assigned that a rather duplicitous name. Matthew, it sounds like you know your history pretty cold. You know, to, he called it an anti-banking safety society because he knew it was against the law for him to actually start a bank. You know, uh, we're going to run out of time here. There's so many things that I want to talk about. And to my way of thinking, some of the most fascinating stuff in the book, uh, the, the, well, the, the, the page-turner part really is the description of, uh, of these militias uh, mounting up against them and the attack and stuff like that. But I, would, I was just fascinated by the part of the book that deals with what happens after Joseph Smith is gone uh, with no obvious successor and this incredibly complicated, you know, almost literally an American idol uh, search uh, or to decide who was going to run off to sort of see who was going to take over. I don't know if we have time for that. I, I, but I do want to just get to the present, Alex. You did research about this all over the place, including Salt Lake City and anywhere that you could go uh, to research this. And and so, you know, I mean, Joseph Smith is problematic. He's a complicated guy, and there's a lot of the things that he, he, he says and does that, um, you know, maybe don't conform all that closely to how Mormons act today. I mean, in general, what was the level of receptiveness? How eager were members of the Church of Latter-day Saints uh, to have you do a book like this? Yeah, well— um as I make clear, actually, at the very end of the book, curiously, you know, the, the Mormon church did cleave into two churches after Joseph was killed. The sort of the polygamists, the polygamy faction went to Utah, the largest and most powerful faction, which is really what we call the Mormon church now. But there was something called the Reorganized Church of Latter-day Saints that actually stayed in Illinois and Missouri. Curiously, they were incredibly nice to me. They invited me to come live at Nauvoo, which I did. Um, the sort of the all-powerful Salt Lake Church was certainly more guarded in their interactions with me. They have a um, very well-funded church history library, and many of the documents I cite here, you can, they have the, they've digitized them. They, you, they, have, they have so much money that you can read a lot of Joseph's original material on, on their website, although I went to the church history library twice. I mean, um, I, I would say they were relatively cool towards me. Having said that, you know, Mormons are extremely uh, diverse group of men and women, and— um, uh, the the book's reception, uh, you know, has 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 been pretty welcoming because they're they're always kind of interested, you know, in, in what Gentiles have to say about them. Well, and I guess that sort of, uh, I mean, I have time really for a final, but uh, you know, a meaty question. Um, to what degree is the Church of Latter Day Saints in 2014 the Church of Joseph Smith, an outgrowth of Joseph Smith, and an extension of everything that he was? And to what degree is it a movement that's established itself in many ways that that effectively outlive and outstrip everything that that happened up to 1844? Well, I think that's a very complex question, but I don't want to dodge it, and I certainly don't want to um, give give any short. I mean, there, you know. You go to Salt Lake City, which you probably have. There, there are statues everywhere of only two men, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. So to make some kind of sophisticated argument, um, you know, I mean, 
that 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 the the church has evolved or is more sophisticated than that would be missing a key point, which mm-hmm. is that the Book of you know, more and Matthew can call afterwards to correct me, but I mean I've been to Mormon church services and you know Mormons are are required to give testimony, um, and ever so often, and they must say in front of other Mormons, um, I know Joseph Smith to be a true true prophet, and the Book of Mormon you know to be to be the word of God, so. Again, I almost, from your question, I think you're talking about maybe, you know, policy peregrinations. Yes, the Mormon church turned its back on, on polygamy in 1890 and again in 1910 because no one took them seriously in 1890. So there, there are certainly elements of Joseph's teaching that the, that the modern church um, has abrogated or ab- abjured. But, but the gospel, I mean, not, not one word of it, you know, not the book of Abraham, not the book of Moses, um, certainly not the book of Mormon. And I think the... I think the character, and I, I, I like your, your analogy to Bill Clinton, because, I mean, I think this, this, this charismatic, somewhat welcoming character is, is very, very alive for Mormons today. And, yeah, and I, I think that has to be the case. I mean, you even hear it in Matthew's question that um, this is a church. I mean, it's very much in the tradition, really, of a lot of American religions. As the Puritans came over here, the basic tenets of Calvinism said, well, if you're in communion with God— you know, you're really, you know, you're getting information that's every bit as valid and up to date as what's in the Bible, although that that particular profession would have been considered a heresy in, you know, in Puritan New England. But it's there, that notion that, you know, in some cases you can get in touch with God and just find out things. I mean, that's, uh, it crops up again and again. I'm just going to interrupt you because, I mean, I mean, revelation, Joseph always preached uh, revelation, you know, that men and women could seek revelation. And, and, a, and a tiny detail we haven't mentioned, it came up last night in a conversation. I mean, you know, Joseph spoke uh, very, very optimistically about, about eternal life, and it, which partially explained the, the ceilings of polygamy. And, uh, and also, the, the, you know, you would, he would adopt people into his family so they could all be together eternally. We, we do need another hour because the other one of the many other amusing things about this, of course, is once you start that ball rolling, it's hard to stop. So you had Strangism. You had all these other people who would say, well, actually, I'm I'm getting messages, too. And, you know, Joseph's <laughs> yeah. not here anymore. And guess what? I, <laughs> I know all messages. this new stuff. Anyway, we don't have time to talk about that. We're all done. Alex Beam, the book is American Crucifixion, the murder of Joseph Smith and the fate of the Mormon church. What fun, Alex. Hey, thank you I for having me, I wish I'd studied me, with David Warsh more and less with Sidney Alstrom, that I'd be every bit as smart as you. Uh, oh, you'll, I'll never be as smart as you, but thanks for having me. It's a, it's a fun subject. All right, thanks.